Hello, and welcome to the first ever episode of Back to Basics, a podcast dedicated on getting you educated on the basics of life and beyond. My name is Maggie Windsor, and I'm your host for today's episode. Space travel has been something humans have been fascinated by for thousands of years. Today, we're going to break down space travel to four different parts. The first is how rocket ships work. The second is the history of space travel. The third is life on space. And finally, the future of space travel. Let's get back to basics. What is space? Space is defined as the area out of the Earth's atmosphere, approximately 100 kilometers in the sky. For a car on a highway, it would take you just about an hour to get 100 kilometers. In a space shuttle, it takes about three minutes. What is a rocket? A rocket can mean a type of engine, but for our purposes, we are focusing on the second meaning, a machine using a rocket engine. Rockets need great speed and energy to leave the Earth's atmosphere. The Saturn V moon rocket generated 34.5 million newtons of thrust to launch. That means rocket engines have to be extremely strong and efficient to get a spacecraft interstellar. All engines work using fuel. This fuel turns into hot gas, which is pushed out to create motion. Rocket engines are the same, but the difference between a rocket engine and a jet engine is that the jet engines need air to work. Rocket engines do not. Rocket engines carry all the materials, including air, they need within themselves. There are two types of rockets. One that uses liquid fuel like the space shuttle orbiter, and some that use solid fuel, similar to fireworks. If a rocket has salt fuel, it will have two or more thin white cylinders holding fuel on the outside of the spacecraft. In the vacuum of space, the rocket has nothing to make movement against. So how do rockets move? Rockets work using Newton's third law of motion. These laws are now almost 300 years old. The law states that for every action, there will be an equal and opposite reaction. When the rocket pushes out its exhaust, the exhaust also pushes the rocket. Rocket pushes the exhaust backwards, so the exhaust makes the rocket move forward. This is similar to the fact that if you are on a skateboard here on Earth and threw a bowling ball, the bowling ball would move forward and you'd be pushed backward. These same principles are used in space travel. Rockets have almost 3 million different parts, but it is similar to think of them in four separate parts. There is the structure, the framework holding everything together, the propulsion system, engine, fuel tanks, and any outer rocket boosters, the guidance system, the onboard computer-based navigation that steers the rocket to its destination, and the payload, whatever the rocket is carrying, from people or satellites to space station parts or even nuclear warheads. Those are the basics of how a rocket works. Now, onto the history of space travel. Humans have always dreamed of entering space, but until the later 20th century, we've never had engines strong enough to break the atmosphere or to deal with the intense amount of drag. In the late 20th century, rockets were developed that were powerful enough to overcome the force of gravity to reach orbital velocities, paving the way for space exploration to become a reality. In World War II, the Nazis saw the possibility that long-distance rate missiles could be used as weapons. Later in the war, they attacked London with two long-range missiles, traveling at a whopping 5,632.704 kilometers an hour. This caused both the Soviet Union and the United States to start their own missile programs after the war. On October 4, 1957, the Soviets launched the first artificial satellite, Sputnik 1, into space. Four years later, on April 12, 1961, Russian Lieutenant Yuri Yagarian became the first human to orbit Earth in Vostok 1. His flight lasted 108 minutes, and Gagarin reached an altitude of 327 kilometers. The first U.S. satellite, Explorer 1, went into orbit on January 31, 1958. In 1961, Alan Shepard became the first American to fly into space. On February 20, 1962, John Glenn's historic flight made him the first American to orbit Earth. 
After that, Neil Armstrong took the historic leap and became the first person to ever set foot on the moon. Many more trips were made to space in the following years. In the 1970s, satellite became more common and the Mariner spacecraft was currently mapping and documenting Mars. Soon, in the 1980s, satellite use was broadened and homes now had satellite TV. Satellite was an incredible breakthrough, giving us knowledge about the growing ozone hole, forest fires, and letting us see farther into space than ever before. In 1981 came the Space Shuttle Challenger disaster. Only 73 seconds after liftoff, the rocket exploded, killing all seven crew members, including Krista McAuliffe, set to be the first ever civilian in space. Now we've come to arguably one of the most famous expeditions of space travel, the International Space Station. This spacecraft has been continuously occupied since the year 2000. The craft is routinely docked by many other international spacecraft and is constantly being proved to be more cost-effective and to improve safety. The International Space Station is in the first generation of permanent orbital spacecrafts. Life in space. One quick let's disclaimer. Life in space isn't glamorous. We don't have the technology currently to make space travel a luxury, comfortable experience, and it is still dangerous for civilians to attempt. But, as many astronauts say, you can get accustomed to life in space. Arguably, the biggest adapter in space is the lack of gravity. Astronauts do not need to use the legs or back muscles at all for support. That means with less use, the muscles go into atrophy and the bones become much weaker. Because of this, astronauts must exercise every single day. Other things that affect by the change of gravity is the circulation of blood and water through our bodies. Our blood will rush to our legs with the pull of gravity. That means our heart works extremely hard to pump blood against the flow of gravity to the head. In null G, both water and blood flow towards the astronauts' faces and heads. This causes the brain to think that there are too many fluids in our system and makes the astronaut essentially urinate all the water in their bodies. It takes a couple of weeks before your body gets used to all the changes in space. Besides that, a lot of what life in space is, is maintenance. Everything has to be properly working, including the astronauts' bodies. That is why personal hygiene is another big part of life in space. Each astronaut gets their own personal hygiene kit with toothpaste, shampoo, a razor, etc. Because water is a precious commodity, most items must work without water, such as the shampoo the astronauts use, which is to work without any additional liquid. Another part of space life is the time limit. The longest any human has spade in space for is 437 days. The fastest space exploration device we have, the Voyager 1 will take 80,000 years to go to a neighboring solar system, Proxima Centauri. That means with the current technology, we are limited in how far us humans can travel. Currently, that is limited in our moving our species off into a far-off planet because our bodies would not be able to handle life without gravity for that long. Hopefully someday in the future, we will have developed a way to create our own center of gravity in space shuttles, considering that that is the factor causing us so much grief. The future of space travel. The near future of space flight is widely available commercial space flight. Although having private investors isn't a new concept for NASA, which has been publicly funded their project since the 60s, vacations in space is a relatively new concept. Companies such as Blue Virgin and Virgin Galactic have pioneered suborbital space flight, which bolster amazing views and calm journeys for the customer. These trips are insanely expensive and exclusive, but are a life-changing experience for those who can pay. The next new initiative of NASA is to put longer, more permanent residency on the moon. The Artemis program, which is a sister to the Apollo program, aims to put the first woman and the next man on the moon. With this initiative, NASA has enlisted the help of SpaceX, as well as many other space-focused corporations. But for many, there is a certain planet near Earth that looks suitable for expansion. Here we have reached a very experimental part of space travel and one that has been mused over for hundreds of years. What happens if humans start to colonize other planets, and in our case, Mars? 
Mars is a cold, dusty desert planet just over 128 million kilometers from the sun. We've discovered that at some point billions of years ago, this planet could have been much wetter and warmer, harboring a perfect environment for prehistoric life. Now it is considered unsuitable for human colonization. But the evidence of ice and small amounts of oxygen in the air make our neighbor a big topic for debate about the next steps in human evolution. For the purpose of this segment, we will be discussing the moral and ethical standpoint of getting the human race on Mars as an alternative to staying on this dying planet. Even if every person in the world invested all of their money, time, and resources, we do not have enough engineers, supplies, or money to get even half of the population on Mars. If we were going to repopulate the species on Mars, there'd be a very limited number of people going, probably around 300 as well as the fact that every person going would have to be a trained astronaut to boot. Countries with large space programs would be the ones to go, such as India, China, Russia, and the US. That means many large parts of culture, ethnicities, and races would be left to die and would not be part of the new generation of human. Especially considering the continent of Africa does not have any large space programs, it poses the risk of leaving the entire continent of Africa and their heritage and culture being left to die. This is an awful conundrum based around the fact that life in space is not suitable for culture food is limited and not made traditionally, religion requires resources and times, something astronauts do not have a lot of. Most music, food culture, television, and books would be left on Earth. Not only is this destructive for the sake of cultural diversity, but also mind-numbingly boring for the crew members. Imagine working all day and night just to live, and then not being able to do anything besides exercise that gives you joy. Life would be a pretty horrible thing. So it seems we're all stalemate for what to do. We do not have the current technology to make spaceflight and colonization accessible, culturally diverse, and enjoyable. Maybe in the distant future, someone will unlock this secret to spaceflight. Maybe that'll be you. Thank you for listening to the first episode of Back to Basics. If you'd like to learn more, visit my Instagram at Back to Basic Insta or check out my YouTube channel at Back to Basics. Have a nice day!